Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Hallwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in this episode, we are going to be looking at Shubnigarath. But before we get into those horrors, what else is going on? Well, sadly, not much just recently, because there's been lots of sickness going around. So There still is going around. Still is going yeah, around. You, Hopefully you, not going around. Hopefully it's staying with you, Matt. In my corner. Yeah, yeah if, if you can hear Matt's voice, you get part of the reason why we haven't met recently. But of course, us not having met recently means we haven't recorded recently, which means if you've been paying attention, you got a special episode when you should have got this episode last week. Uh, yeah, so we've had quite a backlog of Necronomicon recordings, which we've been able to put out, which hopefully you, you've enjoyed. But we're going to try to get back into a, a regular two-week schedule again now. It's just obviously all going to be a week later than it was before. And Matt, I understand you've been uh, branching out. Yeah, now that I have a computer that can cope with doing audio and visual at the same time, and a internet connection that's not powered by a gerbil, um, I've been able to st- start doing some work on um, doing online role-playing. And you're recording with the Into the Darkness crew? Yes, well, we, we've had one session so far. Uh, we've had a character gen session for doing the World War Cthulhu Cold War campaign that I put together, Intersections, that was in the Cold War book. Uh, we've done the character gen for that, which would be... You know, I'm look, looking forward to doing that campaign. I've run it before with all SIS agents, but now we're going uh, going CIA. So doing a different spin on the on the campaign. And this is broadcast on YouTube, right? Yes, that's right. Um, they produce four shows a week that they put up um, at the minute. Usually they um, play between Thursdays and into the weekend then. Did you say four shows a week? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. they're, they're, not, not with all the same people, though. Uh, there's a large amount of the same uh, same players between them. Wow. Wow, okay. that's yeah. that's uh, quite a lot of uh, time. Yeah, yeah, dedication. Yeah, so there's a couple of hours each episode. Um, and they've got quite a long list of all the different scenarios and campaigns they do on each on each day at the minute. So cool. Well, we'll put a link to those yeah. on the show. And Scott, what about yourself? You're in a playtest, is that right? Yeah. Um, our good friend of the good friends, Lynn Hardy, has started playtesting or doing the latest round of playtests of the campaign that she's writing for Chaosium called uh, Children of Fear. It starts off in China and then moves around Asia a bit. Yeah, we've only had a few sessions of it so far, but it's been a lot of fun. What uh, period's that set in? Uh, 1920s. Right, yeah, because I've seen her commenting on it on Twitter. Yeah, so it's been you know, kind of a good combination of uh, you, you're well-grounded in the period and, and kind of nicely odd so far. If you want well-researched period detail, then Lynn is the, the, the go-to person for oh, that, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, did you guys see the news this week? The 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 news. There's um, there's news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, not I not like not Cthulhu to. updates and all that shit. Actual news. I find it far more sanity blasting than the Cthulhu news. It is, but no, this is this wasn't like in the headlines. This was attract fish related news. Oh yes, oh. yes, yes. I did, did see you, this story. You didn't see yes. this, Matt? I don't know. <laughs> there's this young fisherman, right? Who. Around the British Isles somewhere, who went out sea fishing, and he caught a Dover sole. Now oh. apparently, it's a t- tradition with fishermen to kiss like the first fish they catch or something like this, and they wonder how Innsmouth happened. 
I mean, there's some story there, right? <laughs> Isn't there just? <laughs> so he catches this little Dover sole that's only about 12 centimetres long and he kisses it. And somehow, well, like at that the worst point, it leaps from ever. his hand. It's not yeah, dead but, at this stage, so it leaps out of his hand. Yeah. And gets stuck in his throat. And chokes him. And chokes him. And they have to call that, and they're, they're having to do like um, CPR on him. And then the ambulance arrive, and the paramedic has to get some forceps and reach down the guy's throat to extract the fish, which it took some doing and he was going to get like one shot at it because if it broke up they weren't going to be able to get a second attempt and he was interviewed yeah. on the news last night on like the i don't know like the, the the funny bit at the end of the news and they're like would you kiss would you kiss another fish and he's like oh yeah i suppose so and you're like, <laughs> there's no hope for humanity oh. is there no, but that does remind me of a, a slightly more tragic story along those lines, um, which I read about in a book, oh God, back in the 70s, where there was some fisherman, uh, sea fisherman, uh, who had been fishing off the shore and had ended up catching a baby shark. I mean, this thing was like, you know, one or two feet long. And he pulled it out of the surf and, and um, was sort of, you know, showing off to his friends and dicking around with it a bit. And, and the, the, the shark wasn't dead at this stage. And it bas- I, I think he, he was sort of holding it down by its tail. And it swung along and it basically bit into the femoral artery and he bled to death on the shore before anyone could wow. save him. Just, just from this baby shark. That's reminding me of the sloth in, uh, <laughs> or in Orient Express now. Uh, no, uh, no. Mountains beyond the Mountains of Madness. Of madness. Yeah, Beyond yeah. the Mountains of Madness, yeah. Yes. That's why critical roles are there. <laughs> to make sloths deadly. And there is one last thing that we should mention at this stage. As, as we discussed a little while back, we are preparing the next issue of The Blasphemous Tome. If you have any articles or, or artwork or anything that you think that um, your, your fellow Blasphemous Tome readers would like to see, then please send it to us. Yeah, definitely. This is the 80s-style paper fanzine that we publish for all our Patreon backers. At double points if it's fish-related. <laughs> so you can see how to contact us um, on the website, blasphemoustomes.com. Alternatively, wait for the social media bit that we'll talk about later on in the episode, and uh, we will give all our contact details then. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is abomination. It's a noun. One, something greatly disliked or abhorred. Two, intense aversion or loathing, detestation. Three, a vile or shameful action, condition or habit. And yes, once again, we are back in visceral loathing territory. I'm surprised oh. you didn't put number four in there as being Brian Lumley. That, that's, that's just a given. <laughs> but yeah, th- this is once again another one of the many, many, many words that Lovecraft used to express his disgust with, well, everything. I think this is quite an interesting word, though, uh, from a Lovecraftian point of view, because it not only has that extreme degree of disgust, but 
It, there, there are also religious connotations, I think, because, I mean, if you go back to the King James Bible in the Old Testament, I mean, there are so many things in there that are described as abominations of, particularly abominations in the eyes of the Lord. This word seems to then come with baggage, that if something is an abomination, it's not just something that you're afraid of or disgusts you, but it's something that almost comes with a degree of, of religious awe or fear wrapped in that. For me, it's uh, just leaps to white wolf, um, with particularly with vampire and werewolf. That an abomination in both setting is a vampire werewolf hybrid, as was the uh, basis for the Underworld film, where there was the lawsuit potential action going between the game studio and the um, the film company. Oh, what, between white wolf and the film company? Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know about that. Yeah, because they they called it an abomination in the film as well. Oh, okay. And there were lots of. Lots of elements that you could argue, oh, that's ripped straight out of uh, the role-playing game, so is that, so is that, I want right. that too. And... Mm. Yeah. You see, what abomination makes me think of, a term that I don't hear, I haven't heard for a long time, really, the abominable snowman. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Why is he abominable? He's an abomination? I hadn't really thought of it that way, but... Yeah, I, I must admit, I don't really know much about the etymology of, uh, uh, of that phrase. Yeah, it seems a curious... Phrase really. It's another term yeah. for the yeti, right? Or, yeah, mm -hmm. yes. Or the migo. <laughs> yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, strange. Turns up fifteen times in Lovecraft's fiction as abomination or abominations. That is a lot of abominations. So let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word abomination in his writings. From the lurking fear, I cannot fathom it. For the shadow on that chimney was not that of George Bennett, or of any other human creature, but of blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters, a nameless, shapeless abomination which no mind could fully grasp and no pen even partly describe. And from the case of Charles Dexter Ward. If he had expected a flight of steps to some wide gulf of ultimate abomination, Willett was destined to be disappointed. For amidst that fetor and cracked whining, he discerned only the brick-faced top of a cylindrical well, perhaps a yard and a half in diameter, and devoid of any ladder or other means of descent. And from the thing on the doorstep. Dan, for God's sake, the pit of the Shoggoths! Down the six thousand steps, the abomination of abominations. I never would let her take me, and then I found myself there. Yeah, Shobnigurath! The shape rose up from the altar, and there were five hundred that howled. The hooded thing bleated. Kamog! Kamog! That was old Ephraim's secret name in the coven. I was there, where she promised she wouldn't take me. And now moving on to our main topic, Lovecraftian gods, Shubnigarath. Yeah, so today we're going to take a look at Shubnigarath. What is it? In which story does it first appear? How has it developed? And how has it been used? Whether you're a Shubnigarath newbie or a devoted cultist, we hope there will be something for you in this episode. So let's kick things off with the question, who or indeed what is Shubnigarath? Well, first of all, I mean, where does this name come from? Where does the idea of this god come from? Because this is something that 
Lovecraft invented out of whole cloth, apparently. I mean, there are hints of of, uh, mythology and folklore in there. There are influences from other writers and stories. But it's still fundamentally his creation. But, I mean, let's take a look at some of the things that influenced him in this creation. First of all, Robert M. Price in the Shubnigarath Cycle suggests a link to uh, a Lord Dunsany story, Idle Days on the Yan. Yeah, it's from the collection of his A Dreamer's Tales, and is one of the central stories that also influenced a lot of the, well, as it says, the Dreamland stories that Lovecraft would later write. Lovecraft, I think, was quoted as saying, I have my Dunsany stories, and this is definitely one of the ones that influenced him a lot, of which there is um, a very familiar name that you might see in there. And I too felt that I would pray... Yet I light not to pray to a jealous God, there, where the frail affectionate gods whom the heathen love were being humbly invoked. So I bethought me instead of Sheol Nuganoth, whom the men of the jungle have long since deserted, who is now unworshipped and alone. And to him I prayed. So you would take it perhaps that this Sheol Nuganoth is the inspiration for the name, uh, and it's described as a hymn in that passage. Shubnikrath tends to get referred to in Lovecraft in, in, as being female, but as we'll see, you know, there are other versions, maybe. Some more masculine aspects, some more hermaphroditic. Fundamentally, I mean, does gender even apply to uh, a god like Shubnikarath. Well, we've had this discussion a bit when we looked at the likes of Atlak Nacha, which started in The Seven Gearses as being a male figure, mm. but then th- either through subsequent stories and through depiction in the game has become very much a female figure, but the line is a bit more blurred here. But I think also importantly in this, I mean, Lovecraft may have taken inspiration from this name, but there doesn't necessarily seem to be anything else about this god that has inspired Shubnigarath. No, there's, knowing the story pretty well, it's the only reference in the story, and that is the only context given for it. Yeah. And do we get any description of what Shubnigarath is like in these stories? The recurrent phrase that we see is the black goat of the woods, and references to the goat with a thousand young. So there is obviously that that goatish aspect. Then again, when we see some descriptions, perhaps later on in other stories, the goatish aspect is maybe just a form. That there are other more nebulous forms. There are you know perhaps ones that are more gaseous or involve more tentacles. Ultimately, like most Lovecraftian gods, you can't really pin Shubnigrath down to one thing. This goat aspect has led to associations within Lovecraft's fiction itself, but more generally, I think, to witchcraft and and the worship of this sort of goat-like deity that ties in very much with um, you know things like the goat of Mendes, uh, the, this this goat-like god or aspect of the devil that people might worship. And this goat of Mendes, what what is that? Oh gosh, no. The, this is perhaps opening a can of worms. What I associate with this, I mean, it's a complex question and I'm, I'm not an expert. 
I mean, the name refers to uh, an old city in Egypt where there was goat worship that was carried on. But the name was picked up by a French cultist in the 19th century by the name of Eliphas Levi, or who wrote under that name anyway, who used that and, and also used the name Baphomet or Baphomet to apply to this this entity that he describes that he drew a very famous picture of, which um, we'll put in the show notes, which is this the sort of mystical union of opposites, that it is a mixture of male and female, it's a mixture of the divine and the mundane, it's a mixture of animal and human. The picture shows this you know, goat-headed humanoid figure sitting cross-legged, one hand up, one hand down, sort of visibly male but has breasts, um, and you know, is accompanied by the word solvea coagula, indicating the alchemical idea that you know, this is all about sort of breaking yourself down and rebuilding or recreating yourself. I mean, we'll get into this, I think, a bit more as we go on. But I think in a lot of ways, that's a really interesting way of approaching Shibnigarath as, as this, this union of opposite, this, this amalgamation of things that don't necessarily belong together but complement each other, end up becoming transformative. So do you think in the Christian mythos, they've taken that, that worship of goats and that, that kind of imagery and portrayed that as the devil? Because we very much in our modern culture, we see perhaps more, more commonly, if there's a, something that is represented by a goat or a black goat, it's thought of as the devil, right? When we yeah. see The Witch, a film we talked about previously, we got Black Philip, right? Yes. Um, and we see this, this man who's kind of cloven-hooved and goat-like as, as a representation of Satan. Yeah, I, and this is where my knowledge starts failing me, because I don't know where that representation came from in the first place. I mean, not that I remember you know, too clearly, but I, I can't think of any uh, mentions in the Bible that indicate this goat-like aspect to, to Satan. There seems to be something that has come out much more you know, from uh, the, the, the Western tradition. In But as a way uh, of denigrating other religions, I guess. Yeah, possibly. Well, actually, one theory that I do remember reading about was very much along those lines that 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 aspect of the devil was used as a way of tying the devil in with the pagan uh, worship of Pan by representing Pan as this this force of evil, the, of being against God. It was a way of turning pagans who worshipped uh, Pan against their god and and bring them into the Christian fold. Um, you know, how much truth there is in that and how accurate that is, I don't know. One thing that perhaps cements this link between, you know, the gods, god of the witches or the devil or whatever you want to call it, and Lovecraft is the fact that Keziah Mason in Dreams of the Witch House does actually pay, pay lip service to Shubnigarath and the worship of Shubnigarath. The goat of the Sabbath there is perhaps, you know, a, an, an avatar or an aspect of Shubnigarath. So we've got this very curious name, Shubnigarath. We've had one explanation of where it might come from, from Sheol Nuganoth. Any other suggestions? Yeah, the Lovecraft lexicon suggests, and I, I don't know where they got this from, that Shub could be an anagram of Bush, because there was one of Lovecraft's regular clients for, for revisions, uh, whose name was David Van Bush. And they seem to believe that um, you know, Shub was a, a sort of playful reworking of his name. It's the other half of the name that gives me pause. We know, we've, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, that Lovecraft 
was somewhat racist. That second part of the name, Niggerath, it is so uncomfortably close to the N-word that I, I really hesitate before even mentioning this name in public forums. It makes me generally generally uncomfortable. I don't know. It, it, to me, it seems you know, kind of glaringly obvious that that must have been on Lovecraft's mind when he came up with the name. It seems to me a curious use of that racial slur to put it into that deity and then use it in the context he does in the stories. It just seems like if the motivation of putting that in there in Lovecraft's head as a racial slur was perhaps kind of jokey to him. Perhaps. Um, or but perhaps then to put it, it just... into those stories it seems really out of place. Oh, yeah, perhaps it's just where his mind went when he was thinking of, you know, the black goat of the woods. And, you know, the, his mind made certain connections there. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't it's think he ever wrote about it? that in any no, of his letters. Yeah. But I, it, it just seems, you know, given his history, given some of the things he wrote, you know, in his letters and his poetry, you know, even in his stories, it doesn't seem like a huge leap to me. I mean, the, the first time I'd even noticed it was when you mentioned it when we were talking about it uh, previously. Now, unlike something like the cat in Rats in the Walls, where it's blatantly obvious... I'd never seen the connection up until the point when you brought it up. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've spoken to other people before where they talk about how careful they are pronouncing this name. You're making sure to emphasise the U. Yeah, because just to be clear, it's N-I-G-G-U-R-A-T-H. Yeah. And, but, you know, I mean, with some accents, I mean, particularly English accents, it's really easy to oh, run those syllables yeah, together. Certainly, certainly. So that U sounds like an E. Yeah. Yeah. It's a curious one. So given if you feel that way strongly, would you use it then? And how can you justify using it at all? Yeah, I, I justify using it because the way that the deity has developed in Lovecraftian fiction and in games, I find engaging. Some of the, some of the um, concepts that have become associated with it are very, very useful to me as a game creator. It's just that fucking name. But you I, could not use that name, right? You could yeah, use you, those concepts and call it something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, for example, I mean, the one scenario in which I, I did use uh, Shubnikarath, I mean, I, I sort of mentioned in passing that the, you know, it was associated with that, but most of the time I used a different name. So, as we've said, this is a Lovecraftian deity. Where do we first see it used in Lovecraft's writing? Yeah, well, the first time we come across it... Uh, is actually in one of his revisions. It was a story called The Last Test, which um, he wrote with Adolphe de Castro in 1927. The first time we see it in his fiction, his solo fiction, is in The Dunwich Horror, which came very shortly after that. So, you know, the, the, the two probably developed roughly around the same time. And again, I mean, The Dunwich Horror focuses on Yogg-Sothoth, right? Yeah. So is it just an incantation to yes. Shubnigarath again? It's just Ia Shubnigarath. It's this phrase that we see... It's kind of a random bit of spice thrown into stories to make them sound more intriguing. Yeah. And and in in his uh, solo fiction, that's pretty much all we see. I mean, we we encounter, you know, a few epithets like, you know, the black goat of the woods or the goat with a thousand young. And we get, you know, a few hints maybe in the whisper in darkness. But on the whole, we don't really get 
much in the way of cosmology or any indications of, of what Shubhnikarath is, apart from, you know, the black goat of the woods. There's quite a few examples I can uh, remember from Whisper in Darkness. I think there's that whole line where he just spews out just individual names of gods or places, like maybe I mentioned Shubhnikarath, Carcosa, Haster, Bethmora. Yeah. There's loads of them in that one single sentence. And what else do we find out about Shubnigarath from Lovecraft's writing? So we just said we find him, you know, we find Shubnigarath on a kind of a shopping list of, of gods and so on. But do we get any more details about Shubnigarath from Lovecraft? I mean, we get little hints and indications. We'll go to the revisions in a moment because those are perhaps more um, illuminating. But I, one of the other stories in which Shubnigarath uh, gets more than just a casual name check is the thing on the doorstep. We actually had your little reading at the start of this this episode with the word of the week, and that that includes that little bit. And so we had the association there of the worship of Shubnigarath, that, that old Ephraim or Kmog or whatever you want to call him, you know, went down the six hundred steps there and went to the pit of the Shoggoths, which is somehow associated with Shubnigarath. And what I found particularly interesting about this is that. Um, A little while later, uh, Robert Block uh, wrote a story called Notebook Found in a Deserted House. And what that that story is probably more notable for than anything else, I mean, it's not a great story, is that it introduced what Sandy Peterson would would turn into the dark young of Shubnigarath, these sort of tree-like entities with ropey arms and and, uh, hooves for feet. that, That is there in Notebook Found in a Deserted House. However, Block in the story refers to them as Shoggoths. Because <laughs> that seems a curious thing, so the Shoggoths are associated with elder things. Well, sort of. I mean, we, we have lots of different references to what Shoggoths are in, in Lovecraft's fiction. We have you know, that very detailed one uh, with the explanation of their origins in At the Mountains of Madness. We have you know, the Pit of the Shoggoths and this other association here with um, uh, in The Thing on the Doorstep. In The Shadow of Rinsmith, you have the idea that the Deep Ones perhaps have a Shoggoth and they use it as a threat. And it's almost like Shoggoth has become a generic term for big, scary monster. And you mentioned the revisions. So Lovecraft worked with various other authors on collaborations and revisions. Do we find out more about Shubnigarath in some of those? Or are they just, again, just mentions of the name? We get a few name checks in, in stories like Medusa's Coil, The Horror in the Museum, The Diary and The Man of Stone. But we do get significantly more in both his letters and the revisions. I mean, before we get into the revisions, let me just mention, in in one of Lovecraft's letters, he does actually give a description of Shubnigarath, which I think has is, is ended up informing what we see in Call of Cthulhu. In fact, he goes one stage further here and actually identifies the relationship between Shubnigarath and, and Yogg-Sothoth. And he says, Yogg-Sothoth's wife is the hellish cloud-like entity Shubnigarath, in whose honour nameless cults hold the right of the goat with a thousand young. And so we got that idea of it being a cloud-like entity. Well, I'm more concerned with this being Yogg-Sothoth's wife now. Yeah, but as we'll see in another reading later, there is perhaps also a link with Haster, so she gets around. I was going to say, if she slept around that much, no wonder she's got a thousand young. Oh, yeah. yeah I wonder if she's claiming child support for all of them. <laughs> what, would a go- what would support look like from a god? <laughs> Universal benefit. Universal benefit. 
probably the most detailed uh, description we see of, of Shubnigarath and and her role in the mythos comes from oddly enough out of the eons a story about the, the, the story that introduces Gatanathoa. this was a collaboration that Lovecraft did with Hazel Heald. and yeah it's it's surprisingly illuminating it was in the year of the red moon estimated as BC 173,148 by von Junst, that a human being first dared to breathe defiance against Gatanathoa and its nameless menace. This bold heretic was Teog, high priest of Shubnigarath and guardian of the copper temple of the goat with a thousand young. Teog had thought long on the powers of the various gods and had had strange dreams and revelations touching the life of this and earlier worlds. In the end, he felt sure that the gods friendly to man could be arrayed against the hostile gods, and believed that Shubnigarath, Nug and Yeb, as well as Yig, the serpent god, were ready to take sides with man against the tyranny and presumption of Gitanathoa. Inspired by the mother goddess, Teog wrote down a strange formula in the heretic Nakal of his order, which he believed would keep the possessor immune from the dark god's petrifying power. With this protection, he reflected, it might be possible for a bold man to climb the dreaded basalt cliffs and, first of all human beings, enter the Cyclopean fortress beneath which Gatanathoa reputedly brooded. Face to face with the god, and with the power of Shubnigarath and her sons on his side, Teog believed that he might be able to bring it to terms and at last deliver mankind from its brooding menace. With humanity freed through his efforts, there would be no limits to the honours he might claim. All the honours of the priests of Gatanathoa would perforce be transferred to him, and even kingship or godhood might conceivably be within his reach. So, I mean, this tells us a number of things to begin with. I mean, it, it sets up this conflict between Shubnigarath and Gitanathoa. It tells us that there is a relationship there with uh, Shubnigarath and, and Yig, as well as Nug and Yeb. Um, and, and in one of Lovecraft's letters, and you know, another one of the revisions we'll get to in a moment, he mentions that Nug and Yeb are the, the offspring of, of Shubnigarath, and possibly her and Yogg-Sothoth. It's funny, I mean, I tend to think of a lot of the sort of family tree stuff and these connections between the Great Old Ones as being very much August Ehrlich. Mm. Um, but, I mean, between the letters and the revisions, Lovecraft did an awful lot of this as well. I think of the letters he did it much more in a playful way. He wasn't trying to establish a canon, he wasn't trying to say this is how it was, but I think he was just sort of playing with his characters and sort of saying, right, oh yeah, yeah, those two obviously got together and begat this. And, so I don't know. think we see Nug and Yeb really mentioned in the stories, do we? I think they're only referred to as the twin blasphemies, aren't they? I honestly can't remember. Hmm. Uh, they they do come up again in the the revisions here, uh, but um, in fact they come up in the the first ever mention of Shubnigarath. As we mentioned before, Shubnigarath actually turned up first of all in the last test. I talked in Yemen with an old man who had come back alive from the crimson desert. He had seen Irem, the city of pillars and had worshipped at the underground shrines of Nug and Yeb. Yeah, Shubnigarath. So, yeah, I mean, the first time we ever see Shubnigarath's name is there in conjunction with Nug and Yeb. Lovecraft, you know, loved just kind of piling all these names together, so that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but in conjunction with the other references in the revisions and in his letters, it does seem to indicate some connection. Another collaboration that Lovecraft wrote with Zelia Bishop... Uh, it was entitled The Mound, 
in which he states, One squat black temple of Sarthogur was encountered, but it had been turned into a shrine of Shibnigarath, the All Mother, and wife of the not-to-be-named one. This deity was a kind of sophisticated Astarte, and her worship struck the pious Catholic as supremely obnoxious. What he liked least of all were the emotional sounds emitted by the celebrants, jarring sounds in a race that has ceased to use vocal speech for ordinary purposes. Well, there she is with Hasta now. Yeah, and, and also, but this this um, reference to Astarte, you know, a, another name for what would become Ishtar. Um, so, you know, th- th- we're, we're looking at, at connections here between uh, Shemnigarath and, and real-world uh, you know, Near Eastern fertility goddesses. So I think between the, the goat aspects, you know, the thousand young, and now that link with Astarte... We're beginning to see the roots of how in gaming now, when we engage with Shubnigarath, it tends to be as this mother of monsters, this, this you know, mutator, this creator. It seems to be a name that a lot of things get pinned on, and this is, this is our latest one. Um, and you mentioned August Derleth recently. In one of his posthumous collaborations, he also mentioned Shubnigarath. Third is Shubnigarath. A horrible travesty on a god or goddess of fertility. And Shubnigarath, who is the black goat with a thousand young, shall spawn and spawn again, and shall have dominion over all wood nymphs, satyrs, leprechauns, and the little people. And I think that's quite an interesting one. It's something that I know a few other Lovecraftian authors have come back to and a few game writers, but we don't necessarily see that much, which is this connection between Shubnigarath and, and you know, things like Satyr's Fawns, the realm of fairy, um, that she is this sort of fairy, you know, fairy progenitor, that, you know, the, this, this fairy mother figure. You've got the link back to the serpent people, uh, the serpent folk, um, going back to Yig, because little people I know have been in a couple of scenarios. Uh, they've been termed degenerate serpent po- uh, serpent folk. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think that's obviously open to a lot of interpretation because little mm. people is a you know fairly broad term that gets applied in folklore to a lot of different, you know, particularly Celtic fairies. Yeah, just never seen leprechaun come up in a Call of Cthulhu scenario. That's all. challenge accepted. <laughs> oh God, what have I done? <laughs> there ain't no gold in that pot. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I see Lumley, Brian Lumley has also put his own twist on it. He, he mentions Shubnigarath being hermaphroditic, or even the ram with a thousand ewes. As much as Lumley's work leaves me cold, I think that's actually quite an interesting thing. I mean, that goes back to the Eliphas Levi idea of the union of opposites, that Shubnigarath isn't just this, this all-mother, that you know, she is the union of opposites there, that she is fecundity itself, she is both male and female, that she is the father and mother. And I, I think that's quite a potent image. Now let's move on and take a look at how Shabnigarath is represented in Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game. So how is Shabnigarath presented as an entity in Call of Cthulhu? Well, the description from the core rulebook, and I believe mirrored in Malice Monstorum, is... An enormous cloudy mass. This mass doubtlessly boils and festers. It is likely that parts of the mist coalesce at times, forming horrendous body parts, ropey black tentacles, slime-dripping mouths, or short, writhing legs ending in black hooves, 
which may account for the titular reference to goat. Describes a very different thing to kind of what you talked about in the first part of this show. It's kind of this big gaseous thing rolling and boiling and tentacles and slime dripping mouths. That's no We goat. get the black hooves, reference to the goat, but aside from that, it seems a very different image, right? Well, it goes back to that little bit that we had from one of Lovecraft's letters where he describes it as being this sort of monstrous gassy cloud. But it sort of mixes some of that in with perhaps the imagery from Notebook Fountain in a Deserted House, surrounded the dark young, with the, the slime and the tentacles and the hooves. And, and sort of mixes all those together into an unwholesome melange. Yeah, with a nice dash of some imagery from Arthur Macken, from particularly the great god Pan. Yeah, oh, at least, um, you know, Shubnikrath is linked in the Malleus Monstorum with the great god Pan. I don't know, this must have come from one of the published Call of Cthulhu scenarios, but I don't know which one. But, um, so Macken wrote this story, the great god Pan, in which this woman undergoes some neurosurgery uh, at the hands of a mad scientist, which basically allow her to directly experience the influence of what what the, 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 the scientist considers to be Pan, this sort of representation of nature um, that is an all-pervading presence and, and influence, something intangible that is around us the whole time. She, again, finds it to be a, a transformative experience. It drives her mad, but it means that her children, or her daughter, turns out to be something other than human. And it's very much a sort of precursor to the Dunwich Horror in that respect. And who'd made that connection? I mean, is that, so that's represented in the Malleus Monstrorum? Yes. That connection yes, between the Pan and Schopenhauerath? Yeah. And, but, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, there's that connection between Pan and the representation of the devil anyway. So it's not a huge leap to do that. Mm. And the great god Pan in, you know, the Macken story, you know, obviously drawing upon the Greek myths of Pan, sees it very much as being a nature god. So, you know, if you're accepting that sort of corrupt nature aspect of Shubnigarath, then yes, it all, it all ties together very nicely. We just had that description from the Malleus Monstorum, but what, what does the core rulebook have to say about this? Well, one of the things the core rulebook says is when this god manifests, and it's always a problem when a god manifests in the game, really. Well, mm. obviously it's a problem, but well, it's, it can be a problem Cthulhu. representing them. Oh, yeah, when Cthulhu manifests, all your problems go away. <laughs> well, the problems usually go away when most of the gods manifest, but it's a, it's a how do you represent the gods manifesting? Now, one bit of advice here that I like is that when she arrives, she may bud off Dark Young. And Dark Young are these other, as we've talked about previously, created by Sandy Peterson in the game. They're these kind of tree-like entities uh, with big hooves that stomp around and big writhing tentacles. And these are the Dark Young of Shubnigarath, I think taken from the inspiration of the Black Goat of the Woods with a Thousand Young. These are the young. It's why I love this particular god. Not only does it turn up and drive you mad, it then comes as a monster dispenser. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have well, it's six dark young to fight. One of the coolest monsters as well, I think. Yeah, yeah most yeah, deadly as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, pretty deadly. Um, but kind of one that you can pitch against a party of players. And if they're well-armed, then, you know, there can be a combat. It's not... It's not beyond the realm of possibility, given the, the stats. Watch me hey. run away from it every time. <laughs> if, if you're strong enough, you can wrestle a weak one. Ah, let's not go back to that. <laughs> and there's also the idea of the milk of Shubnigarath. I think because she's seen as a, a mother figure, uh, there's this idea of 
the milk, quite where the milk comes from. Not sure. Well, men but, can lactate too. Well, okay. <laughs> um, are, are you going to give a quick demonstration, Matt? <laughs> Watch Fight Club. Done. There we go. <laughs> so basically, it's the properties of this said milk and the influence it might have on on people. And you talked about this in in the first part, Scott, about the transformative properties and whether those are have a beneficial side, perhaps, and or, or the negative side. Usually, a, a mixture of both. Yeah, at the very least, I mean, the milk is presented as being a very powerful mutagen. Some more description from the core rulebook. Worshipped extensively, she may have connections with druids and similar groups. Worshippers of Shubnigarath generally form into gangs or congregations, as do Cthulhu's cultists. Her emissaries and stand-ins, the dark young, may represent the aid she grants worshippers. Summoned, Shubnigarath attacks non-worshippers present. She is often summoned specifically to accept sacrifices. Shubnigarath can be dismissed by those who know her summoning spell, and it is possible to hurt her enough to make her leave. How do you hurt a gaseous cloud like that? <laughs> uh, with great vigour. But I, I, I don't necessarily know that I like the idea that she somehow knows who's worshipping her and who isn't, and that she attacks the non-worshippers. Because, you know, they, we, we, we've got this idea over and over again that the Lovecrafting gods aren't even really aware of us. Well, maybe she sees the people as her pets or something, but... Yeah, I mean, this seems to be very much rooting it back into sort of pagan worship, doesn't mm. it? You know, people gathering in the, the woods, druids and whatever, to worship fertility spirits and, and so on. And I like the idea of the Dark Young being treated as her emissaries there. Because of the way that the Dark Young are, uh, are portrayed in Court of Cthulhu, it's very, very easy just to see them as big, stompy, slimy monsters with terrifying tentacles. Uh, which they are. But they're also intelligent. They have mouths. They can speak. And I like the idea of a Dark Young almost effectively acting as a cult leader, that you've got this coven gathered mm. round, and instead of, you know, a person in robes with a knife uh, you're leading the worship, you have this, this thing that is standing there speaking to you in many voices, all of them coming from mouths around its, its trunk, its tentacles lashing out as it leads its congregation in worship of their, their shared progenitor. So Shubnigarath in the game, if... if she does manifest as part from having the dark young that bud off of her she's this big cloud-like thing with these these hooven feet that can be used to trample people tentacles that can grab people so she's a fairly big nebulous mass that can can attack people and is very hard to fight against because she's um a, a slimy cloud of mist that's immune to physical weapons surprisingly enough though only gets one attack around you think with all those who's, you might get more? You'd think so, right? I think the trampler mm. attack can can affect a host of people in one go. Once per round, Shibnigarath may trample beings of size 300 or less. The trample attack is effective against all such beings in her path, which averages 10 to 20 yards across. Mm. So basically, yes, it's one attack, but it splats everything. Yeah. So, investigators, remember, if you're going up against a god... Space out evenly, about 25 to 30 yards across. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's reasonable to say that Shubnigarath has proved to be one of the most popular uh, deities for Call of Cthulhu scenario writers to use. I and mean, she crops up everywhere. I mean, and um, 
she gets used in a lot of different ways. I, it, it's, it's a bit difficult to talk about this because obviously we don't want to spoil a whole bunch of scenarios because sometimes the fact that you know she is involved is a fairly big spoiler in itself. So I think rather than naming specific scenarios, I mean, can you, you, know, you, you to perhaps give some examples of ways in which Call of Cthulhu scenario writers have used Shubnigarath? It's one where there's been quite a few instances where an avatar of the god turns up rather than the god specifically arriving. I mean, we do have instances where you know, the big Shubnagratha herself turns up at the end of a scenario or you run the risk of having her being summoned. But on almost an equal footing, you find different variations upon, like, say, avatars of the god which emerge. Yeah, it's almost a way of having something that is kind of creepy and weird and then to kind of fit it into the Lovecraft mythos, you kind of think, hmm, let's say that's Shubnagratha. Yeah. Yeah, it's rooted in fertility or it's kind of rooted in fairy inspiration or it's, you know, it seems kind of paganish or it's in the woods. Any of those things, it's like, oh, that could be Shubnigarath, let's say it's that. Yeah, there's, there's one instance in particular I can think of where it's um, Eastern European Russian folklore is used as a way to explain what uh, what a particular entity is. Well, I think we can mention, because we're not mentioning what the scenario is, that it's, it's used as a way of um, using the Baba Yaga legend. Oh, yes. <laughs> the house that runs. <laughs> and we do get some direct appearances of the god as well. I mean, that's more unusual, I guess, but you know, there are some scenarios that, that fit that in. In the instances where the god does turn up, it's not normally um, following the tropes that you'd expect with a god turning up in a scenario or, or a campaign. You'd think that something big like that would be the climax of a campaign or or, or a scenario. No, in, in certain instances that we that we found or we know from having played them, they're halfway through. That they they are features of the plot that aren't necessarily the climax, but definitely major hurdles to get across. So, building on all this. What ideas can we come up with ourselves about how we might use Shubnigarath in a game? I've done one Shubnigarath um, adventure set in the Dust Bowl um, in North Texas. A while um, This is a while ago that I ran this on the conven- uh, convention circuit. We're taking a very much in a similar vein to Yidra, um, another, um, another god. That's, there's a lot of parallels between Yidra and Shubnigarath, I think. That Again, there's you know, the procreation aspect, there's, again, genetics and, and so on get, uh, get wrapped up in here. But using the, the milk of the goddess um, as a transformative, more to help with a form of immortality, that people in a small town basically wanted to live forever and this milk is permeated throughout the land. But in return for being able to produce the milk, there's got to be something that gets thrown in there to keep the god satisfied and to actually produce the milk. Otherwise, where does it where does it come from? So they keep producing um, kids by the bucket load, and then throwing them by the bucket load into a um, into a hole for the goddess to devour. I'm not going to talk about any of the ways I've used Shubnigarath myself in scenarios, but just kind of spitballing ideas now. I one thing that occurs to me is I almost a kind of David Cronenberg type take on things that you know a, a modern day cult of Shubnigarath um that 
has embraced the idea of extreme body modification. I keep thinking back to that wonderful Modern Primitives book that research publications put out back in the 1980s. And this was the first exposure that a lot of people had had to the the body modification subculture, which then became fairly mainstream after that. These were people who were implanting stuff into their bodies, getting plastic surgery to look less human, implanting horns on their heads, uh, bifurcating their tongues, and in one case, the a chap's penis, mutilating, modifying, and and changing their own flesh. And yeah, ultimately, there's only so much you can do with, with surgery, with tattoos, with implants. And if a cult embraced the mutagenic properties of the mother's milk, then the kind of glorious modifications that you could get out of that would be amazing. And I can see in this day and age that that would turn in pretty quickly into um, an internet subculture, you know, possibly even a fetish culture. People looking to kind of change themselves in the most extreme ways possible, becoming the most beautiful of monsters. It's almost a uh, hark back to Midian in um, mm. Nightbreed. I was just thinking yeah. the same thing, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, especially if it manifests differently in each being. You know, yeah. it's not a uniform thing. Hmm. Mm. And now we know where Midian comes from. It's an internet subculture <laughs> where all the monsters went to live. That would explain 4chan. I think I've used Chubnigarath in one scenario of mine, and one I wrote a long time ago. I think because it seemed attractive to use a dark young in it, it's kind of like a springboard. Once you've used Dark Young, it's like, well, I guess Shubnigarath's involved as well, so you kind of <laughs> yeah. have her turn up at the end. Yeah, you've opened the door. It seems well, yeah. yeah it seems rude to shut it in her face again. It does really. Yeah, in that in that one, I just used the big cloud-like thing with the, the hooves coming down and uh, the tentacles as a kind of cl- climactic event to a convention scenario. Another one that occurs to me is. We've talked an awful lot about sort of the more animalistic side and the monstrous side of, of Shubnigarath. But if we see her as being this nature goddess or corrupt nature, perverted nature, then there's obviously the plant life aspect as well. The dark young are, you know, something borderline anyway in that they do resemble trees, but they're, they're not. But I keep thinking back to the glorious Alan Moore run on Swamp Thing back in the 1980s. And there was one particular story arc in there where Swamp Thing has realised that he wasn't this human being who had been transformed, but was in fact this this elemental uh, that that had taken over these human remains and was sort of in touch with the, the larger world of, of plant life and encountered this, this human being who had somehow changed himself and, and had become part plant himself and had a similar connection. The character he faced down against was this, this uh, scientist called Jason Woodrow, the Floronic Man. He had the ability to sort of change the way plants work. So um, he was doing things like, you know, lynching people from, from vines or convincing houseplants to produce more oxygen to make houses more susceptible to house fires. And, you know, at some point he makes a threat about activating the, the uh, intestinal flora that someone is carrying around and turning it into brambles or trees or something. 
It strikes me that if you've got a priest of Shubnigarath who is very in touch with that aspect of things, that is in touch with those those you know, uh, those aspects of plant life, that is potentially absolutely terrifying. Yeah, we do get this reference in the Whisperer in Darkness. Is the Lord of the Woods, um, mm. the the Migo uh, state, referring to Shubnigarath as the Lord of the Woods again? This kind of pagan symbol or kind of nature spirit. Um, so influencing plants here, that increases the breadth of the powers of this thing by a great degree. So it's it's almost like if we were to use other gods like Yogg-Sothoth or Cthulhu, they're fairly, they're more defined things, whereas Shubnigarath is kind of one size fits all. It, it, yeah. It's kind of, you can twist it however you want. So we've said about using the milk. We've said about using controlling house plants, um, summoning dark young. And th- this is one of the things that really makes her appeal to me, in that you know, she is so poorly defined, or at least so broadly defined, yeah. that you can do absolutely anything you know, using her as a pretext. The other aspect we haven't really explored here is this sort of traditional aspect of the witch cult. The fact that you know you could have modern day satanic cults or or older you know pagan cults going back to the medieval witch traditions that are actually cults of Shubnigarath. That yeah, what would a cult that yeah? Forget about the fact that you know the vast majority of witches who were um, killed or accused were completely innocent of anything. Let's assume that there is a you know a real witch cult from medieval times that they are associated with the worship of Shubnigarath. What would it look? Like? What would they look like in modern times? I mean, would they preserve the old traditions? Would they adapt to the times? I know. I, I kind of like the idea of this, this almost time capsule of, of worship. You know, this, the way people try to recreate druidic practices that involves this worship of the goat of the woods. I think you could have quite a lot of fun with people just fundamentally misunderstanding who they are, seeing them in terms of being you know, neo-pagans or, or, or something cuddlier than they are, and just sort of being tragically mistaken when they get involved with something that is old and real and dark. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It is that time once again when we thank those wonderful, generous people who give us money via Patreon. The money you give us pays for all our running costs, allows us to buy new equipment every now and then, and invest in the podcast and generally keep the whole thing going. So thank you very much to each and every one of you. And once again, we have a number of new people to thank. We certainly do. At the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Flo Hohenender. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Flo. Indeed. Thank you very much, Flo. Yes, thank you, Flo. And also, we're saying thanks to Matt Young. So thank you very much, Matt. Yes, thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. And moving up to the $3 level, we have thanks and cheers to offer. Ah, a familiar name. First of all, thank you to Evelyn Morrow, who I I played a game with online recently. So, yeah, thank you and cheers, Evelyn. Thanks, Evelyn. Cheers, Evelyn.
And cheers to Andrew Steubing again. Andrew, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Oh, cheers, Andrew. Yes, cheers and thank you, Andrew. Is that it? I think not. I think now at the $5 level, we, we go that step further for our, our wonderful $5 backers and we sing their praises. I was going to say it was one step beyond if you follow <laughs> madness. <laughs> and I think this does follow madness. <laughs> so we have two new $5 backers to extend our, our, our singing praises to this episode. The first being Chris Placencio. Yes, thank you, Chris. And uh, yeah, this this will be interesting. Oh boy, especially with my throat. Yeah, yeah, I've been warned. And the next victim of our audio torture is Adam Grotejohn. Thank you, Adam. Yes, thank you, Adam. Adam Grotejohn. Yeah, the Grot of the Woods with a thousand Johns. Yeah, 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 we still have a few additional people to thank through the medium of, let's call it song. We try to limit ourselves partly for production time reasons, but mostly fundamentally because of health and safety concerns, to two songs per episode. So, yes, join us next time for more song. And now we take a look at what's happening out there in social media. Now we have another iTunes review. This time from somebody who names themselves Super Grouch Face. Always great, thoughtful and interesting. I love how thoughtful these guys are in the way they consider various horror fiction, cinema and role-playing games. I've been put on to several interesting films, books and television programmes due to Paul, Matt and Scott. As a Call of Cthulhu and Delta Green player slash GM, this podcast is really invaluable. It gets you into your ideal state for considering good storytelling and compelling atmosphere slash mood. As a fan of the horror genre in various media, the good friends are remarkably varied and interesting in their tastes, approaches, and attitudes. This is really nice, and always gives me someone to identify with. Finally, this podcast has made me a better role-player, storyteller, and purveyor of all things horror. It is a great thing to listen to, and I look forward to donating to their Patreon. They do a song for people who donate, and it reminds me of my art school days. Does this remind you of your art school days, Paul? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, in fact, it does a little bit because I used to mess about with um, multi-track recording at art school as well. But but I'm I'm just intrigued that uh, Super Grouchface says that it puts him into his ideal state after listening to our podcast. Yeah, especially as we're sort of thinking about the transformative properties of Shubnigarath. Perhaps we're a perhaps we're a a vessel for Shubnigarath, putting people into their ideal state. We are mother's milk for the ears. 
I was just thinking it's the sand check that does it. Yeah, I think that's more likely, Matt. I think you've nailed it. That was a lovely review, and thank you very much, Mr. Grouchface. Um, Super Grouchface. Oh, so yeah, yes. Well, yeah, I, I was going for the formal approach and calling okay. him Mr. Grouchface. Oh, actually, it could be Miss Grouchface. Mr. Yeah, Super yeah, Grouchface. Yeah, let's you. not make assumptions. Here. Yes, yeah, yeah. But anyway, thank you very much for your kind review. And if anybody else feels inspired to leave us a review on iTunes, then we would very much appreciate it. Yes, I mean, these reviews help an awful lot with things like iTunes ranking and, and help get the word out to a larger audience. So, um, yes, if, if you had the time and the inclination to leave us a review, we would be ever so grateful. Now, another name I recognise from our trip to New York, somebody we met, Evan Dorkin. He comments on our Blasphemous Tomes website... In reference to our Hellraiser episode... Swell episode, guys. Fun to work to. I always thought the engineer creature was tossed in there by someone other than Barker, so as to have some more marketable action, inverted commas. It feels out of touch with the rest of the film's vibe. It feels forced. There's murder, gore, sex, and Cenobites. But someone had to be chased by a monster. I don't think any of the Cenobites could run all too well, so... Corridor monster! Haven't read seen interviews probably a very wrong guess but nw mucked with so many things yeah and i think that's a good point i mean new world pictures i mean obviously the film wouldn't exist without them but at the same time their editorial changes did i i think adversely affect the film in all sorts of ways and yeah this this would fit with with yeah, they're meddling hands. But the corridor monster was pretty cool, right? <laughs> even even it, though it couldn't grab a fucking box off yeah, the floor. Yeah, it was pretty rubbish. Him, but I, yeah, it was kind I, of fun. It looked like a salamander fucked a scorpion and they dumped the offspring in a vat of slime. Yummy. Why are they selling me on it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you kids and your salamander scorpion porn. Yeah, it's the in thing these days. And another comment from our good friend Christopher Smith-Adair, whom we had the pleasure of also meeting at Necronomicon. To give the context, this relates to our word of the week, uh, which was ecstasy. And he says, To the ancient Greeks, to be ecstatic was to be driven out of your mind. Certainly directly encountering the divine in their religion was dangerous to both mind and body. And these were much more human deities than what we find in Lovecraft, typically. Mm, that's an interesting twist on our word of the week. Mm, definitely. Also over on G+, Tor Nielsen has to, um, a bit to say about wizards in Lovecraft stories. That they are kind of ex-humans. They cheat death and become invasive consciousnesses, reduced to essential salts, or become a kind of swarm of consciousness, like in the festival. I guess they end up being frank, preying on the living in order to survive, or return to greatness, and not Cenobites. Yeah, like viewing Frank as a wizard. He's invested himself in these, these arc, this arcane box and unlocked mysteries that man wasn't supposed to know of. And he's kind of bought himself back from the dead like a, you know, like a Lovecraftian wizard. Mm. I, I disagree, though, that uh, you know, the Cenobites don't come across as being Lovecraftian wizards. I mean, there is this idea of wizards being you know, transcendent, that they have meddled with the forces of nature enough that they've been transformed by it and become dangerous by their essence. They're driven by their desires, by um, their need to uncover mysteries, uh, to become more powerful. And I think there's a lot of that within the Cenobites. I mean, sure, they're seeking pleasure, they're seeking experience, but they're doing so by transcending the bounds of what is possible and what is decent. And uh, this is, I think, at the heart of, of wizardry. 
Yeah, I think most of Lovecraft's wizard figures seem to be quite singular individuals, whereas the Cenobites seem to be a collective, though. They seem to be a group, which seems to set them apart somewhat. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, it's almost like a cult of wizards came yeah. together. I can see what he means by that the Frank definitely appears to be more of a wizard than the Cenobites are. That I mean, he does sit in a certain a square of candles. He has this very almost ritualistic approach to trying opening a box, whereas the, the Cenobites just turn up and go, right, fun time now, <laughs> more people to rip apart. Yeah, but the Cenobites started out as people and they got that way. They got that way through transgression. And there is, I think, nothing more essential to the wizard's journey than transformation through transgression. And to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about Shubnigarath? Well, I think Scott said it best, really, a little um, a little while ago. She gets around a bit, that bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're so... <laughs> So the reason you like Shibnigarath is you see her as being a goddess of loose morals. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> I shan't judge. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's... She fills a niche that other gods don't. Yeah. The, the other gods are very... Not one-trick ponies, that's a bit derogatory, but they are very black and white in some respects, whereas mm. Shibnigarath is a lot of what people make, her, um, make of her and... That the fact that she has so many connections to other parts of the mythos that other gods just don't have that kind yeah, of... Yeah, and it's so rarely actually about Shemningarath the god. It's about her influence and about all the, the various things that come from her. Whereas when we think of Cthulhu, it's like Cthulhu, right? It's like the yeah. thing itself. Yeah, I mean, there, there are exceptions. I mean, Yogg-Sothoth is the gate and the key, and there's all sorts of associations and emanations and strangeness that goes with that. I, I think what, for me, sets Shibnigarath apart is all the other deities seem to be more outside. Um, I mean, they're all alien, but these, these are things that are set apart from the rest of us. And there is this feeling with Shibnigarath that she is down here in the dirt with humanity, that you know, she is part of the landscape we live on. And this is something fundamentally different than, I think, almost any other Lovecraftian deity. And that she easily is linked into a lot of what we can buy into being human belief systems. Something we didn't mention was Quake, uh, the computer oh, yes. game. And uh, Shubnigarath apparently appears as one of the final kind of big bads in, uh, in, in that game. Obviously, yeah. Sandy Peterson was one of the developers for that game. Um, so, you know, it's only natural that he would stick in Shubnigarath, right? Mm, I didn't know that. Yeah. 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 So, yes, if you ever wanted to shoot Shubnigarath in the face with a rocket launcher, you know, <laughs> look, look through your parents' uh, CD-ROMs from 20 years ago or 22 <laughs> years ago and, and you might find a copy of Quake. That was a cutting-edge game, right? <laughs> and also, this seems uh, an appropriate time to mention. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember when my wife Lucy was pregnant, she, she had this dream that she was going to give birth to baby goats. <laughs> Oh, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> Sadly, it didn't happen. So Edgar and Emily haven't got cloven feet? They just hide it well. Yeah. Special yeah. shoes. Special shoes. Well, with that thought, let's bring the episode to a close. So it's a good night from me. It's a cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Meh. <laughs> Hello.
BlasphemousTomes.com And yeah, that's um, that. That that is. Oh, I don't know where I'm going with that. So cut all that shit out. Yeah. <laughs>